So first of all, uh, I wanted to thank Matt Curl and his team. Matt is uh, my colleague at InTown. Um, he does a wonderful job uh, leading our worship each and every week and all of his volunteers that joined us tonight. And the thing about Matt is he has this operatic voice that's really high in the register, but you didn't notice that because he lost his voice today and so had to grab a couple of people to fill in uh, as vocalists. And so thank you guys for, for uh, serving and jumping in, even though you didn't plan to be here. Um, it was my job to find the preacher to come and share with us uh, tonight, and I took it upon myself to just choose the person that I most wanted to hear from. And Martin Bond is the pastor at Christ Church in Santa Fe. And he's been married to a beautiful woman, lovely woman, inside and out, Marianne, for 26 years. And they have five children, uh, all of which are grown except one is still in the house. But his son Joe is actually here in Portland, uh, and he is the purveyor of the cultured caveman food empire, which is growing and taking over Portland, the paleo uh, approach to eating, and it's very good. So if you get a chance to visit one of his food carts while you're here in town, do that. Martin and I have been in a pastor's group for about eight years now, and it's been a delight with him uh, to, to get to know him, uh, to hear his stories, uh, and for him to listen to mine and to put up with mine and offer some feedback and offer some wisdom. And as we've talked about things in our group over email and also just in uh, personal conversations, Martin always says the thing that I wish I'd said if I was a whole lot smarter and a whole lot more experienced and wise. And so Martin does a couple of things really well. Not only that in terms of interpersonal relationships and really helping other ministers thrive, but he not only preaches well and understands the Bible, but he also is a great exegete of culture. And so the way that he approaches preaching, I think, will be very uh, encouraging, will be very enlightening, and uh, will also, most importantly, as uh, I've become accustomed to with Martin, it will point us to Jesus. And so, Martin, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us, and you can come now and share. Oh, and uh, happy birthday. I, I, oh, there we go. Thanks, guys. It is my birthday, so it, it's a treat to be here today. When, when Brian um, called me, he knew what to say. He said, um, would you like to come to Portland because I know your son lives here? And I said, yes, I would. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, it is good to be back in, in Portland. I actually lived here as a kid for two years. And those of you that are lifelong um, Oregonians, I lived here. I moved here from Los Angeles in 1967. I'm dating myself, kids. That's a long time ago. I was seven years old, and it, my dad said it's a lot different than L.A. Mart. And I got here in the summer of 68. If those of you that lived here will know that was the longest prolonged drought at that time in any one summer in Portland, over 90 days without rain. And when I got here, I thought, this is just like L.A. This is awesome. And then, then November hit, and I realized this is not like L.A. Um, but I have great, great memories of being in Portland. Saw Lou Pinella play for the Portland, um, excuse me, for the... Uh, uh, the Portland Beavers, when he was a AAA player, he was an up-and-coming left fielder. And then, so, because we didn't have the Blazers back then, we had the, we had the Beavers. And so we, and we had Lou Pinella before he got picked up and got into the pros. But it sure is fun to be back in Portland. What a great town. What a great place to be in the Northwest. Let me read you some of our texts this, this evening from Colossians. And then one brief text out of um, Philemon as well. 
I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God for the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And now in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that you may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now in chapter 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let the conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. If you'll permit me, I want to read just a couple more verses. I know this sounds like a, more like a Bible study than a sermon to, to begin with, but I'd like to read just the end of chapter 4, because I think it has quite a bit of bearing on what I want to say tonight, just briefly. Paul says this as he closes the letter to the Church of Colossians. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. And now just a couple of verses out of Philemon, um, who's also a member of the Church of Colossae. I just want to read to you. Um, a little bit of the conflict that Philemon and Onesimus had. Paul says this in verse 9 of Philemon. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner, and also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. And I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have had been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own free will. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a, well, our rendering says slave, but better to say servant, no longer as a servant, but much more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Thank you for that little addendum. Um, we live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Have, have you all ever been to New Mexico? Some of you have been to New Mexico? This is kind of like the, uh, the yin of Portland's yang in terms of the sun and the blue. So 
In most places, you can either pick blue and brown, which we have. We have blue skies and brown dirt, or you can pick gray and green grass. And you guys get gray skies and green grass. So, uh, um, but I'm glad some of you have been to New Mexico. It's, it's, in some ways, the culture is very similar to, I think, a Portland or a Seattle ethos in the way that people live there. Because it, it grudgingly participates with the United States, just the way Portland does. It has its own culture. We have our own way of doing things. The town is 400 years old. It's older than, uh, it's actually the oldest city in the U.S. We, we wrestle with St. Augustine or St. Augustine, Florida. They say they're the oldest. We say we're the oldest. Uh, so the city actually predates uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence by uh, 170 years. And um, that says something about a culture. So it's a, a city that's really, really old, and we have our own way of doing things, just like people in Portland have their own way of doing things. And we've been there for about 12 years. Like Brian said, we, uh, my wife and I, we're married actually 30 years now, Brian, um, which so, because uh, we have a, almost a 27-year-old son, so I like to say that. So we've been married for uh, almost 30 years. Raised our kids mostly there in Northern California, and uh, we're very grateful um, to be there. All right, tonight I want to look at some of the things that, about Paul did in terms of subversive pastoral theology in his letter to the Church of Colossa. But to understand this, you, you guys and gals, and I'm glad some of the kids are here, you have to understand where Colossa is. Colossa, well... Colossa is in Turkey. It's about 100 miles from the coast. It's inland. It's a little, little tiny town. In fact, I had the privilege of being there about four years ago with some friends um, in our church in Santa Fe. And also, these, some of these friends actually are living in Bainbridge, where, where Pastor Dave is. And we share, Dave and I share, some, we share a family. They go back and forth between uh, Seattle. See, they, they get the blue and the gray. They get the gray and the, the, the green, and they get the blue and the brown. And we went to Turkey together, and we decided to to um, fly into Istanbul and then rent a van and drive 1,500 miles visiting all the cities of Paul. And that's what we did for about two weeks. It was totally awesome. Uh, we ate Turkish food. We had a Turkish guide go with us. And we got to spend time in these various cities like Ephesus and Colossa. And uh, so it gave me a kind of an interest in looking at the, the letter, especially these letters of Paul. Now, Paul wrote three letters while he was in prison in Ephesus. This is between 46 and 48 AD. He wrote the letter to the Church of Ephesians. He also wrote the letter to the church of the Colossians, and he wrote a letter to a guy in Colossa by the name of Philemon. Philemon had a big old crib, big house, because he was able to have a church in his house. And so when Paul wrote the letter to the church of Colossa, there was actually two letters that were there. One to a member of the church, that's Philemon, and one to the church at large. And in that letter to the church at large, Paul tells the Christians there the great mystery that's been hidden for ages namely that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, which is one of my favorite verses of the New Testament, that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. He's in us by his Holy Spirit. In fact, at Christ Church, what we do when people become members at Christ Church, we, and the BCO allows us to do this, because when we have members' vows of membership, I take this seriously in the, in the BCO, they said, please say the following are like vows. Well, I riff on the like vow part, and we, um, so one of the vows that people take, in fact, the very first vow, when people become members, I ask them, I ask them this, do you believe God the Father made you? Do you believe God the Son redeems you? And do you believe God the Holy Spirit lives in your body? And I, and I say that to them, do you believe God the Holy Spirit lives in your body? And if they say, yes, we do, then I go on with the rest of the questions uh, that are like the vows that we have for the rest of us. And the reason we do that is because I take what Paul says in Colossians 1 seriously, that Christ is in us through his Holy Spirit. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Jesus lives in our bones. It's not a metaphor. It's real. The Holy Spirit likes to inhabit our skin. He's inside of us. And that's very important because this is the whole point of Paul's letter to the Church of Colossians. Now, what's going on in Colossus at the time? 
Well, they wanted to meet the Apostle Paul. They never met him. The Apostle Paul didn't plant Colossa. He didn't plant a church in Laodicea. He didn't plant the church in Heropolis, which are two huge towns. A guy by the name of Epaphras, maybe the finest church planner in the New Testament outside the Apostle Paul did. Now, we don't hear much about Epaphras, but he planted at least three churches. He planted Colossa, because it says here in Colossians that he planted the church. And we also know by the end of the letter of Colossians that he had a lot to do with the church in Heropolis and Laodicea. Now, going to Turkey, um, I noticed that Colossa is, a, is, there's nothing there. In fact, we passed it up. We went to Laodicea, which is also in the book of Revelation. Laodicea is the largest right now archaeological dig in Turkey. These huge houses, you guys wouldn't believe it. There was a medical center in the days of the Apostle Paul. It was, it was, it was almost like being at, uh, on the upper east side of New York. You got Cornell, you got, uh, you, you get, you got all these great medical centers, and that's what uh, is going on in Laodicea right now. They have these huge archaeological digs. They had warm one, uh, running water uh, at the time. It's a technological wonder. Um, Heropolis was a major military center. These three towns, Colossa, Heropolis, and Laodicea, are only about 10 miles apart. And we went to Colossa, and there's nothing there. There's only a little sign pointing up a hill and saying, there's Colossa. So we got out of the bus, we ran up, and we looked at the top of the hill, and it was a sunflower hill with one chair and, and a beat-up tennis ball, because I think some old Turkish guy was playing catch with his dog, and he kept the chair up there. And they've not even unearthed the site because there's nothing there. There's no Walmart, there's no Sonic, there's nothing in Colossa. And there was nothing in Colossa in Paul's day. It was a tiny, one gas station town. And it made me think about something. Of all the towns, of Heropolis, which was huge, and Laodicea, which was huge, right next to Colossa, the one that gets a letter that gets inscripturated and also uh, as the churches through and, and breathed out by the Holy Spirit and the church recognized it and became part of the Bible. Who gets in the Bible? This, this, little, this little town with one gas station, Colossa. And it occurred to me there are, there are no small towns for the Lord. There are no little places for the Lord. This is an important outpost. And some of you pastors, I was just talking to John, I knew down in, in New Mexico, he's up in, in Anchorage and some of you guys, you think you're in an out-of-the-way place. You think, does my city matter? Go to Colossae. Your city matters. There are no small towns for the Lord. There are no small places for the Lord. Colossae matters. It matters a lot. Well, this church was hurting. They were hurting because Anismus had a falling out. He was the house leader. He may have been the pastor. He had a falling out with a guy by the name of, excuse me, Philemon was the house leader. He had a falling out with a guy by the name of Anismus. And they were hoping that the Apostle Paul would get out of prison, that Paul would come from Ephesus, and that Paul would preach in Colossae. That's their desire. They wanted to see the famous apostle. They had Epaphras, but he's not Paul. He's just Epaphras. And I'm sure that the day when Tychicus came with the letter to the church of Colossae and gave his letter to Philemon, and next to him was a guy by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus and Philemon did not get along. And Paul said, I know you guys had a falling out, and if Onesimus has done anything to harm you, I'll pay for him. I'll provide the money. Now, for the last 1,700 years, a lot of Christians have said, well, Onesimus was a runaway slave. Because it even says here, and this is actually not a very good rendering in the ESV, and I love the ESV, but it's not the word slave at all. It's actually the word doulos, and you guys know what that means. It means servant. It means servant. And the reason that we think Onesimus was a slave, because it doesn't say this in the text, by the way, 
The reason that we think Onesimus was a slave is because there was one sermon given by St. John Chrysostom in 384 in which he called Onesimus a slave. But none of the other anti-Nicene or, or the fathers and mothers who lived before the Nicene Creed is written, none of them refer to Onesimus as a slave. In fact, Origen says he was his brother. Now, why would Origen say that Onesimus was Philemon's brother and not a slave? Let me read you that one verse that may have snuck by you. But in Philemon, what Paul says is that in verse 15 and 16, the following, For this perhaps is why I was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back, that's Onesimus, forever, no longer as a servant, but much, much more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, that's the sticky word, in the flesh and in the Lord. A lot of people think, well, Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. It was illegal in Greek culture for one brother to hire his younger brother, an older brother, as an indentured servant. You cannot do that to your brother. You can't do it to someone in the flesh. And just because Chrysostom gave one sermon calling him a slave doesn't mean he's a slave. Um, Dwight Callahan wrote an article about seven years ago in the Harvard Theological Review and, and quoting all these anti-Nicene sources and saying, you know, I really think Onesimus was a brother. Because we got that verse that we just say, well, I guess Philemon broke what, Roman and Greek law by, by hiring his brother in the flesh. You can't do that. So if Onesimus wasn't a slave, what was he? He was a screw-up little brother is what he was. That's what I firmly believe. He was Tommy Boy. He was Tommy Boy. He was the screw-up little brother. And the reason he was in prison was, I believe, not because he was running away as an indentured servant. It's because he was a screw-up. He took his brother's money. Onesimus had, uh, Philemon had the house. Philemon was the Christian. Onesimus was the, the little brother always screwing up. And there in prison, who does he meet in prison? None other than the Apostle Paul. And he's through with his time. And Paul gets the letter, two letters, one to Onesimus' brother, because it says he's a brother in the flesh and in the Lord, to Philemon, and one to the church of Colossae. And in the church of Colossae, he says, Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And to Philemon, he says, you need to reconcile with your brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And can you imagine how disappointed those people were in Colossae when they saw Tychicus, who was a courier of the letter, and they saw Onesimus. They saw Tommy Boy. They were hoping for the Apostle Paul. Maybe they were hoping for Epaphras because he too was in prison. But they got Onesimus. And he was coming. He was coming to Colossae. Holy cow, he's coming to Colossae. The, the little brother that screwed up. And then they saw, I'm sure, Philemon and Onesimus reconciled to some degree. And this is what got me. In Colossians chapter 4, just a little tiny verse, and this is where Paul is so subversive in his pastoral theology. Listen to what Paul says. Think of this situation going on. Here's the church. They're gathering probably in Philemon's house there in Colossae. They're reading the letter from Paul, which at that time was just a letter from Paul. And Paul's giving them instructions. And there's, there's Tommy Boy sitting next to his older brother and apparently reconciled. And this is what Paul says to them. Tychicus will tell you everything about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's taken place here. D did you guys hear what Paul told them to do? 
After you read the letter, I want you guys to sit down and listen, and I want you guys to share what God's doing in your life. And you've got two guest preachers today, one by the name of Tychicus and the other by the name of Onesimus. And they'll tell you everything that's going on here. Go ahead, guys. Give the message. Tommy Boy's giving a sermon. Tommy Boy's giving a sermon to the very church that he burned and his brother that he burned. What does he have to say? What could he say? What Bible text did he use? I don't think he used a Bible text. I think he simply said, well, I've been with the Apostle Paul, and this is what's going on in Paul's life. He's praying for you guys. He loves you guys. I love you guys. I'm sorry, sorry Philemon, for screwing you up. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done, and uh, well, let's pray. And, and what's so beautiful about this is that Paul's putting them to test. He's saying to them, do you guys really believe that Jesus is in your body through the Holy Spirit? Are you looking for the best pastor or are you looking for the presence of Christ? I know you're disappointed. I'm not handing this letter to you. It's coming through Tychicus. I know you're really disappointed because you got Tommy Boy back because he's out of jail. And Philemon, just like I told you, if he, if he owes you any money, I'll pay for it. Paul said that to Philemon. But he's got something to say. And that's why he says in Philemon, verse 15 and 16, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's useful, Philemon. You know what the word onismus means, by the way? It means useful. What an ironic name for a screw-up little brother. A useless, useful person. But for the first time in his life, for the first time in his life, he is useful. So how is this subversive pastoral theology? I think what Paul is helping us understand is the location of the Word of God. What and where is the Word of God? Now, we know the Scriptures are the Word of God. But we've always had the Scriptures. We've had the Scriptures from the time of Moses. But Paul says something new is taking place by virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Something new and very powerful is taking place. And this is a mystery that's been been kept for ages, but has now been revealed. And this is the mystery. Christ, the living Logos, is in you, the hope of glory. The Bible points to Christ, and Christ is in you. Say something. You have Jesus living in you. What you say is important. And what Paul is stretching them and helping them understand is that even someone who's formerly useless is useful when Christ is in them. In the, in the Presbyterian heritage, we often say, well, the Bible's the Word of God. And it is. I'm, I'm not denying that, you guys. Please hear me on that. I, I, I believe that, as you do. But the Bible itself is a sign that points to a living Logos, which is Jesus. John gives us seven signs, miracles of Jesus, to say you should, you should point to Him. You should love Him and serve Him. And what Paul says to the Colossian church is, you're, you're sad you don't have a great preacher, uh, they probably didn't have, they had no New Testament text. All they had were Old Testament texts at the time. What could, what could Onesimus say? He could say a lot. He could say a lot. Because who's living inside of him? Who is the hope of glory inside of him? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. The reason I bring this up, guys, is that over the last several years in Santa Fe, I've gone through a lot of, um, I think, healthy paradigm shifts as you get older as a pastor. When you've been pastoring 25 years, you've preached a lot of the Bible, and sometimes you think, I need to find something new, something interesting to me. I've got to find something new in the Bible. I've got to 
find a new story. I've got to find a new way of looking at it. And some anxiety happens at about 20 years in ministry, guys, when you realize, you know, this is, I'm, I, this is like Groundhog Day. I'm going to start preaching the same stuff again because I, you know, I don't have any new material. But think about it. And we, we don't have new material. We have a fixed script. There, there's nothing new. It's all there. And from the outsiders, and I'm sure people in Portland understand this, we're kind of weird to them. So you guys have a book that's a, it's, it's leather-bound, so it's not going to change. You're not going to add anything to it. You have a book, and all the stories are fixed. And you guys get together every Sunday, maybe once during the week, and you tell the same story because you all know the story. And after the story, you sing, and then you explain the story, and then you have a meal, and then you give each other a hug, and you go home, and you think that's going to change the world. And you come back with the very same story the next week. Is that right? That's exactly right. So what's new? Nothing's new. It's a, fi it's a fixed story. Do you guys know how weird that sounds to people that don't go to church? It sounds so strange. There's, there's nothing new. Well, what makes it powerful? Is it our preaching? I don't think so. I, what makes it powerful is the very thing that Paul told the Colossians. There's been a mystery revealed by virtue of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by his ascension, by his sending his Holy Spirit on Pentecost, it is Christ in you. You guys have something to say. And when you touch people with your hands and when you touch people with your heart, Jesus is touching them through you. The first week I was in Santa Fe, um, I, I met a couple that knew R.C. Sproul when he was young. So that tells you how old they are. It's an old Baptist couple that became Presbyterian. And, they're very, and they became part of our startup group, part of our core group. Um, it wasn't the best core group to start with in Santa Fe. I had... I had two retired Baptists starting a Presbyterian church in America church with me in Santa Fe. That was my core group. But Scooter and Carol um, were part of the group, and they prayed every, every Tuesday night for a year. Uh, but, the, but when I got there, I noticed that Carol was in a very... She's a very effective evangelist. A lot of people came to faith through Carol. And Santa Fe is very postmodern, kind of urban, very snarky, um, hard to live in, tourist town. You guys get it. It's kind of like a lot of places where you live in. I said, Carol, what is your, what's your shtick? How do you, how, what do you do to bring people to faith in Christ? And uh, I can even remember we were sitting at this, this diner in, in Santa Fe, and she said, oh, what do you mean, Mark? I said, well, what do you tell people? Because I, I, I've met at least four people that have come to faith in Christ through your ministry. She goes, oh, this is all I do. I, I, I put my hands on their face, and this is what she did to me. I put my hands on their face, and she says, honey, Jesus loves you. And I started to cry. And I said, do you, do you say anything else? She goes, no, that's it. That's what I tell him. <laughs> and, I, and she's very smart, by the way. And I said, why do you do that? Why do you do that? And she said, because Jesus is in my hands, Martin. And I want them to hear him, and I want, him, I want them to feel him. He lives in my body, you know, by way of his Holy Spirit. And I thought, holy cow. Here's a woman, a wonderful woman who loves the Lord, who believes this greatly revealed mystery to the point that challenged me. Because I'm always thinking, well, wait a minute. No, Jesus is in here. He's in here. And we, I would want this to touch them and wrap around their face. That's the, that's the, and she said, oh, no, no, he's in here. And this is what I do. And I thought, thank you, God. And ever since then, I do the same thing. So I've gone to the Carol Frank School of Evangelism. It's a very inexpensive course, by the way. You just got it. Okay. But the, re the reason why it's so effective, I think, and not just effective, the reason that it's true, it's taking the Bible seriously. Where is the Word? Where is the Word? Where is it? Where is it? 
It's in you. It's in me. This is very subversive pastoral theology that the Apostles Paul doing. I bet he was laughing in prison just thinking about that reunion. Like, when they read this letter, and then Tommy Boy and Philemon got to make up, and then he's going to preach, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear that. There's no way they're not going to let him do it because I told him to do it. And here he is. He's going to preach. He's a brother in the flesh and in the Lord. And he's no longer useless. He's now useful because Christ is in him, the hope of glory. Okay, what are some ways that we can think about this and why this makes it important? Uh, you kids, um, what you say is important. When you love Jesus and you tell people about, that I love Jesus, that's enough because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And whenever your pastors ask you to do something, to give a testimony, don't you guys shy away from it? Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And when you guys hit the 15 or 20-year mark and you realize it's Groundhog Day and you can't exegete any more texts, what do you got? What do you have? Well, where is the Word of God? It's not on your shelf. And it's not in your office. The Word of God in your shelf and in your office is pointing to a greater manifestation of the Word of God, which is Christ, through His Holy Spirit, living in you the hope of glory. Now, the reason I bring this up is that there's a little bit of conversation in the PCA about what is the highest good of the Christian faith, the summum bonum. And there's a growing swell within the PCA that I think is very healthy. I just want you guys to think about it for a second. In the PCA, we often think, well, the, the, the highest good of the Christian faith is justification by grace through faith alone. It's the mechanism of justification. And I think, no, that's, that's the mechanism. That's the taxi cab that brings us to the highest good. But the highest good we have in the Christian faith is our union with Christ. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus told us what our highest good is. Lord, I pray that they would be one even as you and I are one. I pray that we'd be united. The highest good of our faith is not our faith. It's being united to Jesus. And thank God he comes to us in the person of his Holy Spirit and lives inside of us. And if we spend time thinking about this and actually believing the scripture that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, it gives us a sense of humility and boldness even in the midst of our awkwardness because we realize it's not who we are, it's who's in us. And when we feel useless, absolutely useless, the only thing that will make us feel and be useful is not our, our, our adroit exegesis of a text or something that we hear from some preacher back east in New York City or, or I think it's right here in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's believing that Jesus is in your fingertips and that Jesus is in your mouth and that what he has to say through you will redound to his honor and to your glory. And the highest good we have is not a thing. Even though I believe in justification by faith alone through grace. Oh, I do, like you guys do. But that's the taxi that brings us to the king. It's just the taxi. It's the taxi that brings us to Jesus. But it's not Jesus. And Paul was stretching his Colossians. You guys want the mechanism. You want a great preacher. You guys get Tommy Boy. And you know what? It's enough. It's absolutely enough. It's enough because Christ is in himness, the, the hope of glory. He's in him, and he had something to say. He had something to say. The greatest gift we have is just what Carol taught me, and I hope that you guys believe it as you, as you go out tonight, 
is that Jesus is in your fingertips by way of, your Holy, uh, by way of the Holy Spirit. Believe that. He's in your body. He really lives in your body. Just believe that, and if we believe that, by the grace of God, all of us will be useful. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you for um, the wisdom and, and really in some sense, Lord, the cleverness of the Apostle Paul of making Anisimus be a preacher at a church in which he's burned. He burned his brother. He burned that congregation. But you brought him back with the very letters that are in the Scripture. And he, he had to give those letters and hear them read and then get up and say something. And Lord, he must have been frightened. He must have been terribly uh, uh, afraid of all the people that he's, he's hurt and burned, particularly his own brother. Um, but you spoke through him, and you preserved these words for us to realize the summum bonum of our faith, which is union with Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you live in us the hope of glory. Help us believe that. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.